Hi there! Welcome to Explain This, a podcast where we try to explain complex things in simpler ways for people of all ages. I'm your host Jen Kim, and today we'll talk about The Philosopher's Stone. No, not the wonderful, magical first novel in the Harry Potter series, but the mythical stone of alchemy coveted by many. Let's get started. If you're a nerd like me, you've heard of the Philosopher's Stone one way or another. Most people are familiar with the word from the first Harry Potter novel, which is called Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Unless you live in the USA, they renamed it to Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone because they thought American children wouldn't pick up a book with the word philosopher in it, because they'd associate it with a boring old man rather than magic. Yeah, true story. Sorry, Americans. Anyway, whether it's Harry Potter, Full Metal Alchemist, Castlevania, or anything remotely inspired by alchemy, the Philosopher's Stone seems to be a pretty important rock, whether it be in popular culture or throughout history. So what is the Philosopher's Stone, and why do everyone from Dark Wizards to plucky young alchemist brothers seek it? And what is alchemy, and how come we don't study it at school anymore? Let's start with what alchemy is, because it's pretty important to know what alchemy is all about to realize why the Philosopher's Stone is even important in the first place. Alchemy is a very old school of study that dates back all the way to ancient Egypt and 4000 BC. You can see records of different types of alchemy throughout the world in history, from India to Arabia to China, and then eventually Europe. In the simplest sense, you could describe alchemy as the study of materials, such as metals, and how they interact and react in different circumstances. For example, the first type of gunpowder, black powder, was invented by Chinese alchemists who were studying the properties of sulfur and saltpeter in the 10th century. So in some ways, you could consider alchemy as the predecessor to modern chemistry, the science of understanding matter and how chemicals react and interact. In fact, alchemy provided a lot of the foundational work for modern chemistry, such as how to purify and distill chemicals, inventing scientific apparatus such as flasks and test tubes, while codifying various metals and compounds that can be used in various reactions. Even famous scientists such as Isaac Newton and Robert Boyle are known to have been keen students of alchemy. But alchemy was a bit more than just studying chemicals. Another simplified one-line description of alchemy would be the study of perfection. Oh yeah, alchemists were pretty ambitious folk. The study of alchemy had two very famous ultimate goals. One, turning a common basic metal, like lead, into gold. And two, create the elixir of life that would grant immortality. Cool, 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 cool. That sounds easy, right? Well, here's where the Philosopher's Stone comes in. In order to turn lead into gold, or to create the elixir of life, alchemists believed you needed a very special ingredient called the Philosopher's Stone. We can see records about the Philosopher's Stone dating all the way back to ancient Arab alchemists, who spoke of a catalyst needed to transmute metals, that is, turning one metal into a different kind of metal. They called the catalyst al iqsir which is where we get the word elixir from. They described al iqsir as a red powder from the Philosopher's Stone. There are similar references in ancient Greek texts from Plato, and also Buddhist and Hindu texts, so the concept seemed to be around back then. It's kind of fascinating to think that all around the world, people were fascinated with turning one thing into another thing. Anyway, what exactly is the Philosopher's Stone made out of? Well, nobody really knows. Some sources describe it as some invisible matter that is all around us, but we can't interact with it. Most texts describe it as some kind of orange-red stone with a glass-like appearance. It can dissolve in any liquid, but won't burn even in the hottest fire. Some texts describe the Philosopher's Stone not as a physical stone, 
but a symbol, a circle enclosed in a square, enclosed in a triangle, enclosed in a bigger circle. Kind of similar to the sign of the Deathly Hallows for all you Potter fans out there. Anyway, we can already see that the Philosopher's Stone is quite elusive, considering we don't even know what it looks like. Which is why it's such a cool thing to include in a fantasy novel like Harry Potter or Full Metal Alchemist, where you can have stories like, ooh, the Philosopher's Stone is actually made out of human souls. Anyway, the concept of the stone is pretty consistent throughout historical texts. It's described as a stone that has the power of turning a base metal into something precious, like lead to gold or silver, while also being the key ingredient to making the elixir of life that would make whoever drinks it immortal. And that's why it was in Harry Potter, because Voldemort wanted to use the Philosopher's Stone to be immortal, not drink some cheap unicorn blood. Now, there are some other powers described, like curing diseases, perfecting the human soul, spiritually revitalizing you, or boosting an alchemist's power. But you get the gist. It's just a really, really powerful stone that can do a lot of cool things. And that's what the Philosopher's Stone is. So what did we learn today? No, I'm just kidding. We're not even close to being done talking about the Philosopher's Stone. In the next section, we're going to go deep into the world of alchemy and actually learn how to make our own Philosopher's Stone. That's right, the power of gold and immortality at your fingertips. And all you need to do is follow a recipe. Bam! So interestingly, even though we don't know exactly what the Philosopher's Stone is made of, or what it looks like, there exists a pretty set recipe for it. The recipe dates back to at least the 1st century, and then popularized in the 15th century when alchemy was becoming a very popular field of study for intellectuals in medieval Europe. The recipe was known as the magnum opus, which means the great work, because it was deemed to be the ultimate achievement for an alchemist to successfully accomplish it. Nowadays, we use the term magnum opus to describe the greatest work by an artist, but to alchemists it was a much more sacred ritual. There are some small variations on the magnum opus depending on which source you read, but here are the main steps. There are three main steps, each associated with a colour. First is the black step, or negretto. It's called the black step because it involves burning the living daylight out of something called the materia prima, or the first matter. What is the first matter? Well, we don't know. Some sources describe it as earth, some say metals like gold, while some say it's the simplest essence of every form of matter, essentially the primordial soup of all matter like chaos in Greek mythology. Okay, so we can see the problem from step one. Where do we even find the Materia Prima? It's not like you can go down to the alchemy shop and get 100 grams of it plus a chocolate bar for $3.50. You can see how the magnum opus isn't some cookie recipe that you can reproduce in your kitchen. It takes decades of dedicated discipline to even understand what the recipe is calling for. Anyway, let's suspend disbelief and pretend you found some Materia Prima in your pantry. What you want to do is take it and burn it. Thoroughly until it is black as the hole in your heart that you try to fill with chocolate and Netflix binges. The black step is the phase of putrefaction and decomposition, where you break down the Materia Prima into a swirling black soup of chaos until it becomes a jet black solid mixture. Alchemists describe this process as reducing things to its base components, so that you can rebuild it in the following steps. Alright, so that's just the first step. Once you have this black solid mixture, we move on to step two the white step, or albedo. This is the process of purification, where we take the black solid and turn it into a white liquid. This is done by washing away all the impurities using a liquid called aqua vitae, or the water of life. Okay, so first we have the elusive first matter, and now the water of life? What the hell? Well, calm yourself. At least we know what aqua vitae is. It's the term alchemists use for ethanol, that is, alcohol, 
or possibly any kind of alcoholic solution used to distill things. So at least it's not as mythical and magical. Anyway, if you think about it, the black step and white step kind of do sound like scientific processes you would do in a chemistry lab. To boil or melt down a substance, then wash away impurities with a solvent, so that you're dealing with only the purest substance. So you can see how alchemy inspired chemistry in many ways. The various recipes for magnum opus describe that you might need to repeat steps 1 and 2 over and over until you have a really pure matter, all white and clear. Once you have this, you enter the last step, rubedo, or the red step. Some sources describe a yellow step, or citronitas, between the white and red steps, but this seems to have been merged into the red step over time. Anyway, the red step is not described too well. It's classically described as adding heat gently to the liquid from the white step, until the liquid starts to redden. Here, they describe how matter and spirit fuse into a physical form. And we've officially lost it. At least burning things and washing impurities away sound like things you can do, but manifesting the union of opposites and matter and spirit? This is where we learned that alchemy wasn't really a science, but more a way of thinking. Surprise! It's time to learn that the Philosopher's Stone wasn't really a physical stone, but a metaphor! <laughs> uh, let's take a break first. When we're back, we'll talk about the philosophy behind the Philosopher's Stone and alchemy, how psychology and occultism got mixed in there, and a crap ton of symbolism. Welcome back. Alright, so now we know that the Philosopher's Stone is some magic compound that can turn lead into gold and make people immortal, and it's supposedly super hard to make. But we also learned that the alchemist may not have been referring to a literal piece of rock, but something more intangible. Like we mentioned before, alchemy created some of the foundations for modern chemistry as we know it. Alchemists were some of the most clever people during that time, leading the research on how to purify chemicals, create useful chemical materials like solvents and explosives, while learning a ton about metallurgy, the craft of dealing with metals. Yet at the same time, Alchemy seems to have a lot of unscientific elements as well, like the whole fusing of spirit and matter and purification of spirit and whatnot. In fact, the more you delve into medieval alchemy, the more you notice some bizarre stuff. Like they talk a lot about dragons and the marriage of someone called the Red King and the White Queen, while some sources mention that the point of the magnum opus isn't to create the Philosopher's Stone, but something called the Rebus, which is a perfect, all-knowing, hermaphroditic being who is exactly half man and half woman. There's a lot of tie-in with other religious and pseudoscientific motives as well, such as astrology. So already, we can tell that alchemy wasn't really what we would call modern science, where you require material proof and rigorous reproducible experiments and results. Okay, if it's not a science, then what is alchemy? Well, perhaps the best way to describe alchemy is that it was a bit of a melting pot of science, religion, and philosophy. You can tell from the name Philosopher's Stone that philosophy had a big part to play in alchemy. In fact, the name doesn't refer to the stone belonging to one specific philosopher, but a stone associated with the philosophers, which is referring to alchemists here. If we look at the story of the Philosopher's Stone and the magnum opus through this lens, that alchemy was a philosophy, not a science, some things may eh, a little bit more sense. For example, the magnum opus probably wasn't a literal recipe or instruction manual on how to create a physical philosopher's stone. It's an allegory. Buckle in, because we're going to get real metaphorical from here. Alright, so let's go all the way back to the beginning and relook at this whole thing through a metaphorical lens. 
Consider the powers of the Philosopher's Stone. What does it do? Well, it turns a common metal like lead into a perfect metal like gold. Gold was always considered a perfect metal because it's shiny, looks very pure, easy to work with, while being very hard to tarnish or corrupt. The other power is giving people immortality, which has been the dream of many since the dawn of time. Attaining immortality would make you almost godlike, a perfect being. So we can already see there's a lot of obsession about the quest for perfection in alchemy, which is why I described alchemy as the study of perfection. If you look at the magnum opus, on face value it looks like a chemistry experiment method, with all the burning and solvents and whatnot. But you could also see it as an allegory, a metaphorical quest for perfection of the spirit. I know, I know, we're really going deep now, but what did you expect from a podcast episode with the word philosopher in it? This is why they changed the title of the first Harry Potter book to the Sorcerer's Stone in the US, right? Anyway, if you look at the steps of the magnum opus, the first step, Negredo, talks about burning something until you're reduced to its base components. It literally describes a trial of fire, or going through strife and challenges until we break ourselves down to really see what we're made of. Because if you want to make an omelette, you have to break some eggs. Then, in the second step, albedo, you're dissolving away the impurities, the things that dilute down who you are, the things that detract from your true self and your full potential. Lastly, the third step, Rubedo, is where you distill this pure essence into something concrete. It's where all of the hard work of deconstructing yourself and purifying yourself is manifested into a set form, a new personality. The red itself is an allegory of the mythical phoenix that rises energetically from the ashes of a fire. So in essence, you could think of the magnum opus as pretty much a medieval self-help book, an allegorical way to achieve perfection and self-actualization. Now, I've skipped over a lot of detail regarding this topic, because the alchemic allegories get pretty complex and confuddling, while getting entangled in a lot of New Age stuff as well. If you are interested, you can read more about Carl Jung's psychological theories on alchemy and the magnum opus relating to the development of our self and psyche. So perhaps alchemists weren't really mad scientists trying to actually make literal gold or sequin mortality, but just thinkers who wanted to be better versions of themselves. It would certainly explain a lot, considering how popular alchemy was among intellectuals during the 15th century. Maybe it was the medieval equivalent of people practicing mindfulness and reading self-help books. Personally, I think it's plausible, but there's an even better allegory hiding behind alchemy, and that is the pursuit of knowledge. Okay, so we're kind of going back and forth from real hard science stuff to wishy-washy metaphorical stuff, but bear with me, because the whole concept of the Philosopher's Stone is extremely complicated, as you might have gathered by now. But then again, explaining really complicated stuff is exactly what I'm in the business for, so let's keep going. So the Philosopher's Stone might not be a literal stone, but a metaphor for self-improvement and seeking the best version of yourself, the best you you can be. But another way to think about it that's related is that the Philosopher's Stone is a metaphor for knowledge itself. Think about it. What does the magnum opus really ask you for? It's asking you to start with a material called the first matter that people don't even really know what it is. So you have to research and experiment and think to even discover what the first matter is. Then you have to hone yourself in the art of chemistry so that you can purify and isolate all the different compounds and solvents you need for the black and white steps. Bear in mind that this is during the Middle Ages, where if you want a science apparatus, you kind of needed to invent it and build it yourself. 
So you have to teach yourself how to do all this, probably from people who had been working on this for centuries, like, say, the Arab or Indian scientists of years past. And they wouldn't have conveniently written it all down in English for you, so you have to learn Arabic and Hindi to even translate the documents. And even if you had all the scientific knowledge and skills, you still need to be well-read in religions and classical philosophy and literature to be able to read between the lines of all these documents, deducing whether the text is literally referring to an actual compound called elixir, or if it's an allegory of the scientific knowledge required to do chemical experiments. All in all, the magnum opus is asking you to learn and know a lot of things before you even try to make this philosopher's stone. And what's the end result of the magnum opus? It's a stone that can magically turn cheap metals into valuable gold, make people healthier, while being the embodiment of the harmony of opposites, the fusion of physical matter and intangible spirit, the metaphorical marriage of the burning solar red king and the pure liquid lunar white queen, and all that mumbo-jumbo. Essentially, you could say that the end result of the magnum opus isn't an actual magic stone, but knowledge. Because with knowledge, you can invent magic powder that can explode rocks away or make your enemy suddenly drop dead. With knowledge, you can tinker with metals and purify them so that you get actual valuable gold out of ores. With knowledge, you can magically heal people dying from an infected leg. With knowledge, you can resolve conflicts, improve the lives of others, create systems for people to live harmoniously in, while creating an environment where the future generation can harvest even more knowledge. And maybe that's what the Philosopher's Stone is. The ultimate knowledge, because knowledge is power. And just like the mythical Philosopher's Stone, it's near impossible to obtain all the knowledge in the universe, because there's so much out there to know. So the quest for more and more knowledge in itself is a noble cause, while benefiting you and others around you in the process. British sci-fi author Arthur C. Clarke once said that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. To less educated people, alchemy probably did look like magic. I mean, look at all the old stories of witches. They were probably just intelligent, knowledgeable women who were healing people with science, but unfortunately murdered by people who were too afraid of what they couldn't understand. Symbolism and allegories are powerful literary devices to transfer knowledge to people who aren't ready to understand the more complicated things. Prometheus has his liver picked out by an eagle and has it regrown the next day, because ancient Greek people probably knew that the liver can regenerate and wanted to pass on that knowledge. Intellectual Hebrew leaders set religious laws like not eating pork to save off parasitical diseases that lived in pigs. So-called witches had potion recipes that call for things like Eye of Newt, which actually means black mustard seed. So it was actually a potion that you can use for ailments. So as silly as the story of the Philosopher's Stone sounds at first glance, you can see it might actually be all about people striving to learn more about how the world around us works and interacts, rather than trying to be actually rich and immortal. Alchemy is the study of understanding natural laws and reusing it. Thanks to the works of great thinkers who preceded us, we have wonderful chemicals now that can cure infections. We've got technology to make light metal alloys that lets us create gigantic metal things that fly, and much, much more. All thanks to people being obsessed with the pursuit of knowledge over the decades and centuries. Because according to alchemists, there is no greater success than the accumulation of knowledge. Let's end our discussion about the relationship between the Philosopher's Stone and knowledge with this thought. There is a lot of talk in alchemy about the union of opposites as part of creating the Philosopher's Stone. You use fire and water in separate steps, 
there is the fusion of matter and spirit, and the Rebus is a perfect being who is half man and half woman. And yes, that's with two heads. I think what this symbolizes is the importance of balance, but also the importance of recognizing that contrast between two very different things don't always mean badness. We have a tendency to see the world in black and white, or good versus evil. But in reality, one of the biggest things you learn in life is that the world is full of grades, and the hallmark of being a mature adult is having the ability to hold two very different truths in your head and be comfortable with it. For example, you could be a man and have a reasonable discussion about the rampant prevalence of toxic masculinity and oppressive sexism that women are subjected to, without feeling personally attacked and being defensive. You might have to accept that you want to be a good person, but sometimes you do crappy things that hurt others, because you're human. You might have to be okay with the fact that even the most terrible period of your life can help you grow, while the best thing to ever happen to you can also cause issues for you and hurt you. The Philosopher's Stone is also a metaphor for how perfection isn't something that is all good or all shiny, but something that is perfectly balanced, as all things should be. So yet another allegory for the quest of creating the Philosopher's Stone is training your mind and soul to embrace the confusing, non-dichotomous reality of the world, and being okay with the fuzzy greatness that is life. Alright, I think there's just about enough metaphors and allegories. Before we finish, I want to talk about one more thing, and that's the question of, can you actually make lead into gold, like the alchemists wanted? I mean, literally, not figuratively. To our knowledge, there has never been a reputable record of an alchemist turning lead into gold or making the philosopher's stone. There's a story of a person called Nicholas Flamel who supposedly does such a thing, but all of these stories were invented 200 years after he died. Although he does feature in a lot of pop culture now, thanks to the stories. Anyway, turns out, modern science has come far enough to be able to achieve one of alchemy's ultimate goals. You see, both lead and gold are what we call elements, like hydrogen, oxygen, and carbon. It means that they are purely made up of one type of atom. What gives elements their unique properties is how many protons, neutrons, and electrons they're made up of. We'll talk about atoms and molecules in a future episode, but for now, that's all you need to know. Elements are identified by atomic numbers, which note how many protons they have. If an atom has one proton, they become hydrogen. If they have eight, it becomes oxygen. Gold has an atomic number of 79, while lead has an atomic number of 82. What this means is that if you add three protons to a gold atom, it becomes a lead atom, and vice versa. But turns out, messing with an atom, the literal fundamental block of matter, it's really hard and takes a metric crap ton of energy. But thanks to science, we can do just that. You can use a fancy schmancy machine called a particle accelerator, such as the Large Hadron Collider, and spins atoms really, really, really fast around the gigantic ring. Then, you can spin another atom really fast around in the opposite direction, and hope that they crash into each other. If you use enough energy, you can strip electrons or protons away from one atom. So what this means is that you can crash particles into lead atoms, strip away three protons, and presto, you made lead into gold. This isn't even just theoretical, we've literally done it already. To quote Jesse Pinkman, Yes, science! But unfortunately, we can only get trace amounts of gold this way, so it's actually much, much cheaper just to mine gold from the earth. Plus, the metals that are easiest to turn into gold using this method, platinum and plutonium, are far more expensive than gold by weight. So, yeah, not the most lucrative scheme. 
Either way, it's super cool that we have the ability to do this. Turns out alchemists weren't so far-fetched after all, they just needed technology to catch up. Maybe someday, we'll crack the code for immortality too. And you know how we're even going to do that? With the Philosopher's Stone. I mean, knowledge. Same difference. So what did we learn today? We learned that alchemy is an old, strange field of study that combines science, religion, philosophy, and what seems like magic to study how to turn one kind of thing into another kind of thing. We learned that the ultimate quest for alchemy was the creation of a Philosopher's Stone, a magic stone that can turn lead into gold and create elixirs of life that grant immortality. We learned how to make this stone, but that it's also incredibly difficult, even if you followed the magnum opus recipe to a T. We learned that actually, alchemy might just be a whole bunch of metaphors and allegories, and the Philosopher's Stone might just be a symbol of self-improvement, knowledge, and the quest for perfection. We learned that despite this, we can make lead into gold with the power of science. Lastly, I hope we learned that even if something sounds silly and far-fetched, things are never as simple as we think, and we have to learn to embrace the fact that opposites can exist in harmony, in all sorts of different ways. Okay, for today's 2 minutes explain, I thought I'd go with the topic of why blood is red. Because, you know, Philosopher's Stone is red, and how you need to kill a bunch of people for the stone in Full Metal Alchemist and whatnot. So the reason why your blood is red is because your blood has red blood cells. Simple. Alright, alright, so the reason why your red blood cells are red is because they contain lots of molecules called hemoglobin. This is a very special molecule, because it can bind oxygen, letting your red blood cells carry oxygen from your lungs to all the cells in your body, keeping them alive. So it's pretty important. Hemoglobin has iron in it, which gives it a red hue, similar to rust. And contrary to popular belief, blood in your veins is not blue, but a dark purpley red. Your skin makes your veins look blue because that's how colours work. When you have lots of oxygen in your blood, the hemoglobin is bright red. But when the blood drops off the oxygen to your cells and is coming back to the heart via the veins, it is much less oxygen, so it looks dusky red. But weirdly, there is an animal called horseshoe crabs that do have blue blood. That's because these crabs have something called hemocyanin instead of hemoglobin, and they use copper instead of iron. This gives their blood a lovely milky blue hue. Horseshoe crab bloods are actually really interesting because we need them to produce drugs, so we harvest this blue blood off them as well. But that's another story for another day. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to Explain This. I hope you've learned something interesting and maybe even useful today. We'll see you next time. Bye for now. Explain This was written and hosted by me, Jin Kim. If you'd like to suggest a topic or just send a lovely message, you can email me at explainthiscast at gmail.com or follow me on Facebook or Twitter 